This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. This story happened about 50 years ago. So at, in the late 60s at the University of Chicago, there were a group of young women who helped their fellow classmates at that time get safe abortions because they were hearing about people dying going for illegal abortions. So they set out to help one student and then it became like a code name of Jane when other students wanted to get some help. So Ask for Jane was the title that they came up with this movie about the Jane Collective. Um, it's a wonderful story, a true story, and it's exactly why I wanted to make this. But what we want to show with this movie is that we want young women to go to this movie and to understand that these rights that were given in the late 60s could be taken away. Yeah. So we have to make sure that those rights are not taken away from us. This is this story is now. When I saw the Georgia thing, I also read that across the 50 states, there's like 1,100 uh, restrictive laws about abortion. It's more, it's like doubling every year. So there's so many ways I could introduce you, but Caroline, owner of the iconic Caroline's Comedy Club here in Times Square, New York City. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And and also the very importantly, and what we're going to discuss uh, also is your producer of the upcoming mo- uh, movie Ask for Jane, which has a fascinating story. We'll talk about it. it's based on a true story that I had no idea about, and I was so it was it was so entertaining and informative and shocking at the same time <laughs> as I was watching it. So I'm. I'm kind of teasing this without saying the story, but uh, good job on producing that movie. Thank you. Thank so I get, you. I guess I want to go in three different directions because how do you, from scratch, you know, put together a, such a great movie like that? Then the actual story itself was so interesting. And then, of course, I want to talk to you about, you know, what you've done here since since the 80s, you know, setting up such a great comedy club. I mean, I, I was just talking with uh, Greg, your, your, uh, the head of PR, how you know, we were trying to debate, would you say this is the number one iconic comedy club of New York City or, you know, top three? But it's certainly in there. The, the argument could be made in, 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 in the, for the direction of number one. Well, I would say, um, I would say it's probably the number one club in the country. That there so you go. I'm not going to stop there. with New York City. There you go. Because once you make it here to be number one, then you really have, you know, you're number one in the country. I, I agree with that. So, so, and part of the reason it's, it's, you could say it's number one is, I mean, think of all the comedians that either got their start here or part of their start here. Like you've had every single comedian we talk about today has either headlined here or been the doorman here or somewhere in between. Well, you know, I think, you know, years ago in the early 80s, I opened this club about 35 years ago. So in the early 80s, we came up with this formula like we were going to pay people. You had a formula out in L.A., and you had Catch a Rising Star, and these were called showcase clubs, and they never paid the performer. They gave him maybe taxi fare or something like that. And that's how, that, that's how they ran their clubs. And I decided that I was going to have a nightclub in New York where we paid somebody to come in, 
And they worked for like two weeks at a time so we could get the word out. And, um, you know, the first one that we brought in like that was Jay Leno. Huh, that's funny. So uh, what, what were the economics or something like that? Because the reason the showcase clubs pay, let's say, 50 bucks, you put seven cl- comics on, it's $350. And the door, if you have 100 or 150 people, $20 plus a two-drink minimum, you know, the economics work out. Mm-hmm. So how do you make the economics work out if you're paying like a big amount for a headlining star that well, you like, promote? Well, you know, the economics, it's just like any kind of going to any live event. You know, um, you you pay a performer a certain amount of money and then you have to raise the ticket prices. So it's just like going to a big live concert now at Madison Square Garden when you're paying hundreds of dollars for tickets. So, so it's same same formula. It's on it's it's on what you're paying and what you can bring in. We have about 300 seats here. So when you do the math, you know what, without yeah. giving away the door like a lot of clubs do. So And also, it's, uh, you know, Times Square location, you get enormous foot traffic. So if you have a big name on the front, plus all the foot traffic, that's a good combination as well. It, it helps. Yeah. I mean, the area helps. It absolutely does. You so, know, people pass by, oh my God, I see Tracy Morgan here tonight. I'll come in. You know, it's like, and Tracy Morgan kind of got his start here, right? He did. This was kind of his first club that he we ever headlined. I read one interview you gave where you said people didn't really get Tracy at first, and now he's still doing kind of similar, the same type of style. And now, of course, everyone knows his his style is is famous. Uh, that kind of smart goofiness mm-hmm. that seems clueless but isn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, why do you think they didn't get him then? It's perception. You know what happens if people say to somebody else, that Tracy Morgan is just so funny now. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's funny now. I mean, that happens a lot. It's People have to understand and have to hear from other people. Oh, my goodness. I just saw this Bill Burr. He was fabulous. I just saw this Gary Shandling. He was great. I mean, it's gone on over the ages like that. So we just keep, we kept bringing Tracy back because we always believed in him. And then I think after, um, you know, he was on Saturday Night Live for a long time. But but before, like when he was just starting, what did you, like, because, you know, I don't know if you were ever the actual talent booker at at the place, but Mm. you certainly saw all the talent and would make your judgments Mm. and bring people in and support people, like you said, with with Tracy Morgan, you know, support their Mm -hmm. their efforts. What did you see? I'll ask you a couple of comedians if that's okay. Like, what did you see with Tracy Morgan that nobody else saw? There was an honesty about him. He was just really funny, organically funny. I mean, Tracy will sit in the chair and talk to you and be, and he'll make you, you know, cry that he's so funny. Um, it's just a, this ornate ability that he has. And it's just, we, I was just talking about him a few minutes ago about his last performance at the Beacon Theater with us during the New York Comedy Festival and how brilliant it was. He wrote wrote this whole new hour of new material and it was just fabulous. You know, not talking about his accident any longer, you know, carrying on about, you know, everything else he's doing in life. Uh, And what about like a Jerry Seinfeld? I'm sure before he had a big, he was hanging out here all the time. He, uh, Jerry, Jerry performed at my first and second club. That was way back. And I think Jerry headlined in like 1983, and I remember we're talking to Jerry just recently about him headlining and doing New Year's Eve in the club, and he said it was just a, a real big feather in his cap at that time when he did that. But there was an honesty about Jerry also. You know, he talked about everyday things 
that we all went through. And, you know, I'll never forget one of his jokes is like every time I do the laundry, I think about that extra sock. Where did it go in the, in the dryer or in the washing machine? I mean, it was an honesty that we all shared about having that same experience. And he's probably the only one who could get away with doing that joke again 30 years later. And people still laugh. They don't mind. Oh, I, they don't say, oh, I heard him do this joke before. It's like they still laugh at it because it had there. You're right. There's this truth to it without it necessarily being true. We don't, like, he probably doesn't do his laundry. Anymore. Maybe anymore. not anymore. Maybe, maybe he did that, maybe he didn't. Who knows? But uh, uh, I always wonder this thing about, you know, they say comedians should mind their life, should should find their voice, should be authentic. And some do by just observations that aren't necessarily exactly true in their life. And some do by telling stories about their life and 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 finding the funny there. Uh, I mean, what do you, what do you prefer or what have you seen? I mean, you've probably seen it all, but what's, uh, well, I think, what's honesty to you? I I think that a lot of young, let's, let's look at a person that's just starting out, you know, who's probably in, you know, out of school, dabbled a little, um, probably at about 25 that is probably writing jokes and trying to talk about their life now. But I think as as a comedian gets older, they get more to talk about because their life is much more fulfilled. Like like you'll see with Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, he started from being a single guy doing his laundry to now talking about his children. So it's, you know, it's it's a pattern that great performers go through. Yeah, I guess like like if you uh you know, even though he's a controversial name now, if you think of like Louis C.K.'s comedy for many years. It was sort of absurdist and silly. And then suddenly, I remember the one special, I was listening with my daughter actually, and 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 he said, you know, my daughters are bitches. <laughs> and suddenly like my daughter's like, it's like she's shocked, like, are they listening to him saying that? And then, but that like really, I feel catapulted in mainstream was when he was opening up on personal issues on his on his own growth that became a growth in his comedy. Absolutely. So there's there's the perfect example. He started off as this goofy guy from Boston. I mean, I met him when he was probably 19 years old. And then when he got into his late 30s, early 40s, you know, when he had children and then he got divorced and he brought that all into his act, you watched all the other 40-year-olds in the audience going, oh my God, that's me too. So there's this community that watches the comedian that that knows and puts, oh my God, that happened to me too. So that's why. And, and that really put him over the top. So yeah. So I mean, you must have seen this quite a bit where comedians are are young and they're 19 years old and they're, hey, can I get stage time? And and you see them as kids and then you see them just rise up and suddenly are making 20 million a movie or, you know, like uh, you know, a Kevin Hart where you see a Dave Chappelle who's getting mm-hmm. 20 million a special. And I don't know how old he was when he started here, but I imagine it was when in his teens. Uh, you know, how does that make you feel that you kind of were a big part of this process of their growth, both fi- both artistically and financially? Well, I think that, you know, I met Dave. He was probably, he lied about his age. He was probably like 17. Um, he came up from Washington and we would put him on like, how old did like he say a new, was? Not a new talent, like as an opening act or just trying out or like a special guest tonight. And we watched him evolve. I mean, and you can see that um, after he got, 
He did stand up for a long time. And then when he had the show on Comedy Central, um, you can see how that highlighted more of his talent about what he can do. And then when he took the hiatus and I was going back again, I would say that, you know, Dave is probably the, one of the most brilliant stand-up comedians today. Yeah. I mean, mm. I don't know. Is he, is he is he doing... I mean, he did just did the four specials on, on Netflix last year or the year before. And then he just... Today or yesterday, uh, they announced he won the... Or he's winning the Mark Twain Award as best humorist of the year. Uh, is he doing another Netflix special? I, I don't know. You know, you know those specials. Dave taped them on his own, mm. and then I guess when the time was right and the price was high enough, mm. um, he sold them to Netflix. So he had taped all of that. He had all that material that he he had taped on his own, and then and then re released it. What do you think of Netflix doing? Like you know, they're doing like a hundred specials with comedians. Does it dilute kind of the power of any one special? Uh, I mean, it's, it's like every other comedian is getting a special. Um, they're not all. I'm not. I'm so, not going to say that Netflix, you know, doesn't know what they're doing, but um, you know, I I mean, um, they see a market here mm-hmm. for stand up, mm-hmm. and um, they've certainly set the price very high for other pay cable and streaming outfits that you know would like to do business with comedians, um, but. Um, you know, the more the merrier. But you know, people weed out what they don't want to see. They, you know, it it you, you'll you'll say you put enough on on TV, you'll weed out and you'll have the best and just that. That's that's how it'll be. But you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing, the kind of Netflix and even Amazon phenomenon. Like you you in the early days, you had your own show. You know. Carolyn's Comedy Hour. I forget the exact title. I did. And that was the title. <laughs> and and it went on A&E and you were getting, you would do six seasons of 26 episodes each and that you were getting a million viewers an episode. I don't even know if that hits the top 10 shows now on broadcast. Like media has totally changed. Like the TV landscape has changed and live experience though is still relevant, mm-hmm. still important because that's mm-hmm. an experience. You go out and you do it and what do you think is going to happen to kind of TV and entertainment in, in general? Oh, I think that, you know, the, the content business is is here to stay. Um, I just personally love it that there's more out there to watch. I'm there, There's two parts of it. You know, we talk about the live experience, which is definitely growing because people want to get out of where they are because they're watching all the content and they're also on their device all day long. Mm-hmm. So it's part of being in a situation with other people. That's why the live experience has been in a boom in the last few years. Um, but, you know, you can't beat it out that, you know, we have all those great TV shows to watch now, and it's it's really, I'm, I love it. So I'm sure everybody else loves it. Yeah, like, but I was thinking, though, what's, and, and I promise we're going to get to the movie because this, so, so, all right, we'll just get to the movie. No, 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 no. I, I think I understand what you said. So, yes, when I had my A&E show, I mean, we came out of the box with like a million people on a Sunday night. And I remember being there um, on a Sunday night at the club because I think we were taping something. And I was there with Abby Raven, who was the executive on my project at that time. And she told me, oh, my goodness, we got these great ratings. This is really super because it was her TV show at A&E. And um, over the years, you learned about all of the rating points. And now, if a show, now shows barely get, you know, a point three. Yeah. And sometimes when they get a point five, they go, it's a hit. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, it has changed, but that's because we are so diluted out there. There's so many different places to go for what you want. 
But like, can the can the networks then afford to do? You know, could you make a show like Lost anymore, which costs a hundred million dollars to to for the series premiere? Like, can that be possible anymore with with numbers so much lower? Like we were talking recently to um, one of the main producers of The Simpsons for many years, and you know their first show was twenty six million viewers. Now like their last show was one point three million viewers. So can you can they still do the same thing? I, I, I guess the economics are not there any longer. Um, I guess The Simpsons, my goodness, how many years has that been on? 28 years? I, I don't know. It's just been amazing. Yeah, it's gone. But but it's not that they're gone. They're just gone to another a lot of other places. So it's fractions of, of yeah. what they used to get. So given that, and then this, this is my segue to the movie, you know, movie business also is hard. Like, it used to be the case, you know, indies had a shot. Like particularly, I think in the in the '90s, maybe in the early '70s, there were different periods where uh, non superhero, non franchise movies could hit the top ten for a weekend. I feel now it's all franchise movies. You know, studios mm-hmm. don't want to take a risk unless this is a shot for several hundred million dollars in box office revenues at least, like minimum. What made you so? Ask for Jane. It's a story, uh, a story I had never heard of. And by the way, I'm even embarrassed to say I I asked you that. I said that to you when we first were introduced outside. I said, "Oh, I never heard of this story." And then even in your PR packaging, it says everybody says I never even heard this story before. But it seems like such an interesting, pivotal story in the landscape of Roe versus Wade and and all the politics around that. So it's about uh, a, a set of girls, you know ended up being called the Jane Collective, but a set of girls who wanted to help other women get abortions, which were then illegal. So they had uh, a number uh, pregnant girls could call and they would ask for Jane. And that meant they needed an abortion. And these girls would then hook them up with a doctor. And gradually, like any arc of the hero, more and more complicated and problematic things happened along the way that put everybody essentially in crisis. And your movie, Ask for Jane, um, covers this whole story, is is beautifully dramatic. Like you wouldn't know it's really based on a true story. It's really, you know, riveting. Like what's what's going to happen? Because then uh, I won't give anything away, but like amazing things happen to these girls and to their patients and, and so on. And then, you know, and then of course, Roe versus Wade happens towards, you know, the end of the movie. We're making abortion legal. But there were so many things I didn't know about kind of the cluelessness of society just, what is that, like 50 years ago now? It was sort of mind-blowing. I didn't know that. I just thought, oh, okay, it was illegal or in most places or all places, so people had complications getting an abortion. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that everybody's values were so twisted around even the issues of birth control and so on. Can I say the one scene with the doctor? Sure. Or you could describe. It. You describe. Yeah, it. No, sure. no. So the so the uh, this this story happened about fifty years ago. So at uh, in the late sixties at the University of Chicago, there were a group group of young women who helped their fellow classmates at that time get safe abortions because they were hearing about people dying going for illegal abortions. So they set out to help one student, and then it became like a code name of Jane when other students wanted to get in touch with, to get some help. So you asked for Jane was the, the title that they came up for this movie about the Jane Collective. Um, it's a wonderful story, a true story. And it's exactly why I wanted to make this. A young woman came to me about this story 
because she had heard about it. She's a generation younger than me. She knew, she she came up with the, the story because she heard about it through some other way and wanted to do something about it. So she came to me looking for financing. And I said, let's, let's try to work on this and, and get it done. And we did. It was written by Rachel Carey. She's a screenwriter directed by Rachel Carey, produced by women, made by women. It's all women on the staff. There were a few men peppered in there that helped out also. We can't eliminate the men from anything, but it was. And, 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 I, was, that, and I, I went for it because I'm, this is an amazing story about these brave women that really, I mean, were, you know, up for, uh, you know, criminal charges because of what they did. Now, they make, they make the point in the movie, you know, one of the uh, characters makes the point that they thought they were they thought they weren't really going to get in trouble. They were sort of deluded into thinking they weren't going to get in trouble at all. That they were very safe somehow. Uh, but then they realized, oh, this is very illegal. Even though people don't believe, many people don't believe it should be. It, it was in fact very illegal. They were you could get potentially serious jail time. Uh, when you've spoken to people who were uh, as part of your diligence on the movie, I'm assuming you spoke to people involved in the actual, you know, Jane Collective back then. Do you think they were ever scared? Uh, do you think they were legitimately scared that they were going to get caught and get in trouble? Yeah, I think after they graduated and then they went out to help the community more of the surrounding area in Chicago, what they did, I mean, at the end of all of this, they helped about 11,000 11, women um, you know, obtain a safe way a safe abortion, you might, you, you know, that's what they helped to do. But I think that truly down deep in their hearts when they were doing this, they felt that it was their right. They did it to help other women get out of a situation that was really scary. And I think they felt it was like, you can't tell a woman what to do with her body. And they really believed that. And I think that helped them through that whole crisis about doing something illegal. They did not think they were doing anything illegal. They would just right. thought it was their right to help other women. You know what I like too, just from kind of a philosophical point there, if they wouldn't they wouldn't give advice either way. So if someone said, Should I do this? They would just say it's up to you. Mm-hmm. Which I really feel is, you know, sometimes I don't I don't know. Sometimes I feel pro, so obviously I'm pro choice, but I feel sometimes pro choice movements or, or ignore the fact that there's really two sides. It's, sometimes it's good to have a baby. Sometimes it's good to have an abortion. And uh, uh, but the, but these women in the movie were just like it's totally up to you. They would never they never offered an opinion. Which I thought no, was they very- never they never offered an opinion. They were just trying to help out somebody in a crisis of whether or not to have the baby and 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 get them maybe the means to do that. Um, but, but the other part of it is that, you know, you, nobody wants to have an abortion. Okay. Nobody sets out to say, I'm going to get pregnant and now I'm going to have an abortion. That's not how it happens. It happens because you're not ready. It happens because maybe there was an accident with birth control. It happens because maybe you did not have the right birth control or maybe you didn't know enough about it. So, I mean, it's, you, you can't just say that. And you know what? Every woman is an individual and every woman feels differently about when she wants to have a baby or not. So it's it's a very personalized situation, but nobody clearly sets out to say, I want to have an abortion. It's not anything like that. It's a it's a decision that a woman makes and she loses sleep over it. And after probably after she has an abortion, that scar is with her for probably the rest of her life. 
because she did something that maybe might have been worked out a different way, but it didn't for her at that time. So, you know, people that do it do not take it lightly. And and there's there was also all these issues in the movie that women didn't really even understand, you know, their, how pregnancy really worked in some cases or or how, you know, there was the one woman who uh, gets an abortion and she didn't understand that she had been raped and that's why she got pregnant. Mm -hmm. And she was just so almost like innocent about it and yet traumatized by it. And I just, you know, these kind of things don't really happen in society the same way. And I was just surprised, you know, like there was the issue with the, the doctor who uh, refused to give the 22 year old woman uh, birth control because and then she said, if I, and she asked even, if I was married, would you give it to me? And she said, if I, if your husband said it was okay. And you were just telling me earlier right. that that was the law. I didn't know that was law. I thought that was just the doctor's judgment. No, 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 no. That, that was, that was kind of a law at that time. I mean, doctors wanted, didn't want to do that. These archaic laws that existed in 1968 was probably, that was probably closer to like 1970 when that happened. But that, but that was, but that was true. I mean, and, you know, when, when that part of the movie comes up now, you, you hear a chuckle in the audience like, oh, my God, how ridiculous is that? But this is what young women did face at that time. Yeah, and then there was the other thing that was astonishing to me, that apparently if three people gathered around a table, for instance, and started talking about abortion, then that was against the law. Because well, that was, that yeah, that was considered manslaughter. If three people are in a room, in a room and talk about abortion... Um, that those are grounds for manslaughter. So like if Steve Cohen came up here right now and sat down and we all said, uh, like, do you have to be advising someone to get an abortion with three people? So, okay, we were advising Steve to get his relative of an abortion. Uh, then we're committing manslaughter well, or aiding and abetting. Well, not in New York, thank mm -hmm. God. Uh, not in Illinois any longer either. Well, not anywhere but, now. But in Chicago in the late 60s, yes. <laughs> what other stuff did you discover making this movie that astonished you? Well, the the whole story about how many women came through it. Yeah, 11,000. I mean, yeah, yeah. And no... And how many women really wanted to help too. Right, so so part of the the, you know, argument about Roe versus Wade was that women were going to get abortions no matter what. And so many women were dying. And, and you, know, I, you know, I won't say the specific scenes, but this is riveting how you describe this in the very beginning of the movie, but which really keeps you in there. Like, it was, that was shocking. But, uh, uh, you know, I, what was amazing is that of these 11,000 women that these girls helped, the, the abortion seven or the Jane collective. The abo yeah, the abortion seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the none of the eleven thousand women died. For no, instance. there was one incident of somebody having a procedure, and only because she tried to abort herself and then came to the group for help, and they brought her to a hospital. But she already tried to do something to herself, and she, you know, caused some hemorrhaging, and then she eventually passed away afterward, but not because of the Janes. The Janes were trying to help her after she tried her own procedure. Hmm. How would people try on their own? Well, there's all sorts of things with knitting needles, spokes of umbrellas. It's, you know, hmm. trying to um, 
um, to abort their babies, mm. punching themselves in the stomach or paying somebody to punch them in the stomach oh my gosh. or jumping off like a one-story building and trying to abort the baby that way, huh. knowing that you might break something, but then you might abort easily enough. Huh. So, you know, they did this out of a way like, as you see in the movie, there was a classmate that was trying to take her life and that's what set them up to try to help her. And um, it was a way of saving women's lives and helping women that they, they fought to do. And um, I thought they were very brave women. Uh, they gave a lot of their own life and money to it. Um, and then they stayed there after college. And you know, it, it's, it's the, tr the movie itself is written like the true arc of the hero. Like you have you know, the main character who was the first person to answer the phone for, for Jane. And she's like this, what seems like an ordinary girl. She'd like to figure out how to have impact and protest, but even the class she was in that was all about protesting, he was very focused on, you know, men's kind of issues. And I like the line that Janice says to her, which is like, oh, we're always, we're, we're always protesting about Vietnam. Men are the one going to Vietnam. We're protesting, we're in, on the front line protesting about Vietnam, but they don't give a shit about women's issues. Say, you know, Rachel, Rachel Carey that wrote the screenplay, she did that brilliantly. She got that piece in there and, and a lot of people pick up on that piece. And then they're at a SDS, you know, conference there and they're talking about, you know, men dying in Vietnam. And they say, well, what about the women dying from abortion? And they go, oh yeah. And they put that on the bottom of yeah. the list of what they want to help do. So, and it sets it up where the women go get the coffee, you know, for the men and they're protesting for the men in Vietnam, but the men don't really care about, you know, their problem. Right. But, but then it's- And that's true. That's true at that time. I mean, it's probably true even now, like every step of the way, there's new issues and new mm -hmm. conflicts about this. But like, I, I just, again, love the fact that, okay, she's this ordinary girl trying to figure things out. The call to action is how do we keep- helping these girls just like they help the classmate. And of course, at first she rejects the call to action, but then is compelled, is frustrated enough with, you know, always fighting for men's issues and not women's issues that she decides to start doing it. And then the problems get successively harder. Like they graduate, so how do they do it? They, they meet doctors who aren't necessarily upfront about everything. And, you know, it just gets harder and harder, mm -hmm. uh, all the problems they face. And so I just thought, again, it's this riveting, true story, but in the context of a uh, well-written, like if anybody wants to learn story structure, this movie has this perfect structure, it seems, right up until the very end. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, by the way, when you follow the lives of all the characters and, and particularly the main ones that was, you're able to follow in real life, what, what they ended up doing, they became real serious, you know, I don't want to say protesters because that sounds advocates. They yeah, became they became advocates, advocates for women, and, and they really uh, created a lot of change. And you know, even working for a presidential administrations. So mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, what would you say to, you know, would you say now there's issues like that that are so clear cut? So when I say clear cut, here's something where I don't know if a million people. I don't know how many people were getting an abortion a year, but you know, there was all sorts of risks and expen expenses and people dying and people being humiliated and lives being ruined uh, and, you know, until it became legal. Would you say there's any kind of 
issue like that now that is so impactful across an entire the entire well, country? Well, we're 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 you know what's happening right now in Congress is that you know we're seeing this across the country is that they're trying to dwindle away at these rights that women have to seek their own reproductive health the way they want to do. Right, like what's the new thing in Georgia? In Georgia was just passed yesterday. It's the heartbeat law. It's considered uh, six weeks. Um, you're, you cannot, you're not allowed in Georgia to get or seek an abortion after six weeks of being pregnant. Listen, most women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. They just think they may be just something late, something not happening right in their body. They don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Where is it that that someone needs to tell you about what to do with your own body. I mean, this is really outrageous. And this is, this is gone, this is Ohio, this is in Alabama, this is going across the country. Listen, women, women that do not have money and really need to go out and get an abortion are really having a hard time doing it. Look, if you have money, you can probably get anything done you want, you want to do, whether you break the law or not. But women, they've made it so hard right now for anybody to get a safe abortion. And that's really a pity. And you're going to see more and more women die. Well, well, I, when I saw the Georgia thing, I also read that uh, there, in various, in all, across the 50 states, there's like 1,100 uh, restrictive laws about abortion. It's more, it's like doubling every year. Uh, so somehow or other, it's like this creeping you know, attack on Roe versus Wade, which the other thing I learned in the movie is that Roe versus Wade was based on privacy issues. So, which is a weird way to to put it. It's like this sort of backdoor way to kind of solve the problem as opposed to just simply saying, look, leave women alone already. They had to kind of come up with a way, oh, it's a woman's right to privacy, not her right to choice. So I, you know, uh, but like you think about this Georgia thing, doesn't that conflict with the right to privacy? Won't that, if that goes up to the Supreme Court, they've got to throw that out. Well, they're waiting for it to go to the Supreme Court. This, this is all, they're all, they're setting all of this up to go to the Supreme Court. You know, and we are 50-50 in the Supreme Court right now for, you know, about how, which way it'll vote. So they're just dying to get it up there. They're dying to get a decision. I'm just curious. I'm talking about the opponents. I'm talking about the opponents to pro-choice are dying to get a ruling in the Supreme Court about this. Well, and I'm curious what you think about this. Uh, let's say, let's say specifically this Georgia law, uh, you know, law gets up to the Supreme Court and clearly Roe versus Wade should shut it down instantly. But as you mentioned, it really depends on the personal opinions of the justices. Do you think Brett Kavanaugh is would vote for or against that Georgia law? For it. He would vote for it. Because the, the one theory I had was, is that he had so much antagonism, of course, that he created and, and, and you, know, you know, he created uh, from women uh, during the nomination process that maybe he would try to pander a little by not uh, being anti-choice, you know, by being pro-choice. Um. Um, I hope so, but I don't think that's the case. Okay. Uh, we can be optimistic about it, but I don't think that's the case. Were you ever worried that if he didn't get nominated, the next in line was apparently like an evangelical who certainly wouldn't have? Well, the next in line probably wouldn't have gotten nominated either. Okay. Mm -mm. Just... That wouldn't go through. Uh, yeah, so now that the movie's done, it's coming out May 17th. Mm -hmm. 
where is it coming out? It's coming. It's opening in New York at the Village East Theater um, that weekend, and then to open around the rest of the country in the weeks to come. And what do you hope for in that process? Like, obviously, you hope it gets good reviews. Well, yeah. You know what? It's like you know, it's it's an a t- it's a tiny movie. It's a really important movie. I think it was well made, as you talked about the structure of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and good acting. Great actresses in it. People that people will recognize from from TV shows and from yeah, movies. That and, woman from from uh, the Good Wife. The I Good Wife. Uh, that's Sarah Steele. She's mm-hmm. in that. Uh, Chloe Chloe Levine. Uh, Sarah Ramos that was in uh, Parenthood, Cody Horn from Magic Mike, Ben Rappaport from Shonda Rome's new uh, new series that's on in New York, um, is Allison Wright from The Americans, Michael Rabb. Um, great great group of actors and actresses in the movie. And so so let's say it gets good reviews. Let's say mm-hmm. it sells out at Village East, which is a fairly small independent theater in mm-hmm. New York. What happens next? Does an AMC ever pick it up or? Well, we'll see. Um, we're, we're going to be opening around the country through our distributor, which is Level Film, and then also through My Cinema, which is this technical distribution system that they have to go to small theaters around the country. It's really cool. So we'll see. We have to see what happens after this first weekend. But what we want to show with this movie is that we want young women to go to this movie and to understand that these rights that were given in the late 60s, could be taken away. Yeah. So we have to make sure that those rights are not taken away from us. It's almost like in the closing credits, you could almost list all the, just for the heck of it, list the, let's say, 1,100 restrictions that currently Mm -hmm. uh, happen, just as a reminder that Mm -hmm. this this story is now. Yeah, I know. You know, we closed out the credits, but there could be added things, could have gone in there in the last few weeks to, to see what was going on with it. You know, the thing about the movie is I don't know if it was like some sort of, I don't know, like spiritual thing about doing this movie and hitting right now when this is the topic of conversation with women about losing these rights. And the movie is so poignant and relative to that. And, uh, you know, for a movie like this, what has to happen for it to get noticed, let's say, by... And I'm just naive, I don't know. So what has to happen for it to get noticed by an Oscars or things like that? Well, I don't... <laughs> you know, I love this, that James loves this movie. Um, I did, uh, like we were yeah. And you're, we were you're, you're a pretty observant person. That's really great. Um, we'd like it to get noticed, and we'd like people to say, what a great movie, and you need to see it. And because of, and because of the story, these are women... And these women are alive. Heather Booth will be at... Um, the first showing of the movie for we're doing a Q and A, and on Friday night at at the theater. Oh, where where at Villages? Yes, at Villages. Oh, yeah, the, she, she's the one I'm referring to. Like she was involved in as an advocate for so many things. Like this is she's the real she's the Jane. Yeah, so yeah. Booth, well, she's like the Rose character. She's right? the Rose character. Mm-hmm. It was one of her friends' sisters when they were at school. That that was the incident that started it. So Heather's going to come up from Washington and she's going to talk about it. We're going to have a panel discussion at the movie. And what? how active were you in, in kind of putting it all together? Like, what did you um, do? Well, I have to tell you that it came to me, it was, it was written already, it was pretty much plotted out, and then we kind of put the financing together to get it done. And, and how Kate, much did it cost? Kate Cook, tell you, um, it's a very low-budget movie. I'll just say very low. Yeah, there's all, a couple there's of sets. Two, there's a, yeah, well, we shot that in Brooklyn, you know, but it looked like a college campus. Uh, we shot it in Brooklyn. 
um, was pretty much made in about 30 days, which like kind of an hour and a half movies made in 30 days. So um, they were proud of it. Uh, you know, people work for scale. Um, people, the costumers, you'll see people have commented about how the women look in it and how they change a little bit over the years, just a bit. Yeah. Um, so it was a great crew. Uh, lots of women worked on it, and um, we'll see what happens with it. But we're very proud of it. And, you know, I was reading, there's another, I don't know if it ever got made or finished, but there was another movie starring Michelle Williams, also about the Jane Collective. So what's what's the story of that? And I don't are you know. worried about it? I don't know. You know, what happened was, when that happened, um, I had said to my a friend of mine, uh, Melissa Silverstein, who runs Women in Hollywood, I've been very involved in that organization from when she first started it. It's 10 years old now. So she, I told her about the project, and she loved it. She said, oh, this is great. You got to do this movie. And, uh, and, and about two months later, she, she sends me a clip on, from Deadline saying that Amazon was just, had just purchased a script about the Jane Collective. Mm. So I said to her, so what do you think? We should make it? She says, absolutely. Whoever knows if this movie will ever get made. And also if so, it does, and it's just on Amazon, it could it easily... It's, how many shows are there? There's like a thousand shows on Amazon. Well, yeah, and then um, and whatever it was, and then we got, and then there was some, uh, and then people were writing up. Oh, there's two movies about this subject. Well, I guess a lot of people were thinking about this was a good thing to make a movie about, which is good. Yeah, and there's recent uh, documentaries good, too. But then they got slammed because it was all men making a, a, a it was a man director writer, all making a movie about women. So it got slammed for that. Well, you know what? Researching the movie. I never heard of this thing, um, the Bechdel mm -hmm. uh, metric, where basically uh, a movie is female-friendly if at least two women are talking about a subject uh, uh, that didn't have a man involved. Didn't revolve around a man. Yeah, like, okay? like two women, and like in Sex passes, in the City, two women are always talking about men. This is a triple-A <laughs> pass on this movie. It's not about men at all. It's right. about them. And so, did you even think of that when, like, how? Well, did, I knew about I knew about the test. Uh -huh. I, oh yeah, we knew about that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess I'll segue a little bit into, you know, there's all people are constantly talking about women in comedy. Wish more women were involved in comedy. Do you see the the women in comedy thing as a an issue in this world? You, you know, the the world of comedy clubs and and comedy um, specials and. You know, I always worked with women comedians. I'm still friendly with, you know, two women that I get really friendly with that were worked for me the first year I ever opened. Carol Liefer, who is Who's a writer-producer. Carol Liefer, who just finished um, the last season of Curb as one of the producers. Um, and Sandra Bernhard. I keep in contact with them. So it's like I met them almost 35 years ago. And I'm still in contact with them. And those were the original women. It was Sandra Bernhardt, Carol Liefer, it was uh, Rita Rudner, and Elaine Boozler. Mm -hmm. Those were like the four women that worked at my club the first year. And the rest of the weeks, weekends were, were men. Mm -hmm. But you have the same thing today. Look, there are, a lot, there are a lot more young women going into this business than ever. And a lot more young women on the stage than ever. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes from, you know, a lot of the young women right now in their 20s, um, and, and older, but I'm saying like right now coming out of it, you know, they, they grew up watching the Comedy Channel, Comedy Central, and the Hot Channel, and they kind of got their news from Jon Stewart. 
And they kind of grew up with lots of comedy around them. And they knew that they, if they enjoyed that, that they might be able to do that too. And, and that's why there's been many more women in the business. Yeah, both comedians and writers and, and producers. And I look, look, I think that Amy Poehler and Tina Fey really opened up the door after they hosted the um, the Golden Globes. When they t hosted the Golden Globes, I think they really opened up the door to prove that women were really funny. And I think also, like even more recently, let's say Amy Schumer or Lena Dunham, you know, with their shows and mm -hmm. and Amy Schumer as a stand up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, oh, there's more. There's more. You know, Lena Dunham. You know, she um, she accepted an award from the Writers Guild for girls, and she gets up on stage and she says, "Well, I just have to thank my mother because my mother took me to Caroline's for New Year's Eve, and I saw Lisa Lampanelli, and I owed all to going to Caroline's that I'm in this business today." It was like, wow. And then I find out that Lena took a stand-up class here and graduated from the really? the Caroline's Comedy School. So what? What? Uh, so she's of that generation. Now Lena was she's like late twenties, thirties. So you have that generation that came to see. You have the thirties, and then you have the the twenties right now, mm -hmm. and and you have the Amy Poehler and the Tina Fey in the forties. Mm -hmm. So you know, a lot of women coming out to do comedy now. What do you? See, who do you see as up and coming comics right now? Um, I like to watch Lisa Schrager, Yamanika Saunders. I love Yamanika and, Saunders. Yeah. She is amazing. She's amazing. Actually, she's going to the Miss Foundation dinner with me tonight. We go every oh, year really? together. Yeah. Tell uh, her James Altucher said she was amazing. I talked to her all the time. So, and Steve, we got to get Yamanika yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, so, love her. And she's been she's been doing really well, like slowly but surely. I think she's you know, getting past that tipping point that that many comedians go through. Um, it is a tipping point. You're right. That's that's a good phrase to use. It is a tipping point. You'll see somebody do stand up for like seven or eight years, and then that ninth year, they just go boom. They just explode. Is there's just something about it? Don't do you know think? what it is. It's it's just it's just doing it for so long, knowing yourself, knowing how to deliver the joke, knowing what's going to work in the room. And just just getting better and better and better at it. It's well, really amazing. It's an interesting thing because people sometimes confuse stand up with being funny. People say, "Oh, if you're funny, you can do stand up." But there's being funny is like one component that's important. But there's you have to learn how to perform it and how to t tell a story and how to have stage presence and do crowd work and and things can go wrong in your act. And there's so many other things. Like we had in in one day, we had on um, a comic writer who tells writes jokes for all sorts of events and he writes many episodes of The Simpsons. And then we had on Susie Essman who did stand up for 16 years before Curb. And, uh, you know, the writer is just funny all the time, but he didn't have to think about how he would perform it on stage. Whereas Susie Essman said, oh yeah, about the nine, 10 year point is she was good all along, but then she was really kind of finding her voice as, as many comedians put it. And it seems to take, you know, a certain number of years. It does. It's absolutely true. Well, when you're looking at comedians and and trying to decide, oh, okay, is this someone I'm really gonna get behind? What do you what do you either what what do you see in those in those situations where later on they really shoot for well, the stars? Well, first you have to see when somebody's starting out, you know, that they have their own voice and there's something unique unique about what they're saying. But then that doesn't always mean that they're going to be great at it. So you have to watch this person over a number of years grow. And you can really see them grow. And then there comes that aha moment 
when they really pop. And then they have to keep on working and working and working at it. You know, years ago, a lot of comedians were just like, their big desire was just to get their own sitcom on broadcast TV. Well, now there are so many other options open to everybody, whether it's writing and producing, doing stand-up specials for streaming services, for being cable. It's it's just exploded. So, so well, Caroline Hirsch, owner of Caroline's Company. Oh, by the way, one thing I wanted to mention, you're not going to remember this, but in 1999, we had lunch. So what happened was we had a mutual friend. We had a mutual friend, Ed Bennett, um, oh God! Who, who I haven't spoken to since then, pretty much. But he he knew from you that you were thinking about either building a website or you need help on your website. I had just sold a company that made websites for entertainment companies, and so he introduced us. And you were all I remember is we talked about your your website or what you wanted for your website. But we have met once before. Is the Chinese place? I forgot what, what it was uh, next door. We had Ruby Foos. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. That's when I went to Ed because he was getting very much involved in technology, and I had this brainy idea that I was going to create Carolines.com, and that was going to be the next Comedy Central. But I should have stayed with that idea. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I would tell I at the time I had so I had just sold a company where I made websites, but before that I was working for HBO making all their comedy websites. And I would go to the Aspen Comedy Festival each year and interview all the comedians and so on. This is like 1996, mm-hmm. 97. And I would tell people, I didn't know what I was talking about, but they were scared to death. But I would say, everybody's going to be watching these things on the web more than TV. And they would panic. But that's what's essentially happening now. So, but anyway, we had met once before. It was nice, it's nice to meet you again. Uh, Caroline Hirsch. Hey, Caroline, can I ask one question? Yes, you can ask one question. Fine. I mean, first of all, you probably don't speak to Ed Bennett anymore for introducing him to James, right? Um, it's not. Yeah, you, Ed, Ed, Bennett, Ed Bennett was, at that time, he, had, he was the head of the Ha Channel, which oh. was the Viacom channel, which then merged with uh, Comedy. Comedy Channel to become Comedy Central. Oh, wow. yeah, so, he, was, he was the head of VH1 also, and then he was the head of yes. Viacom Cable, and then he was the head of Prodigy. Remember that? Uh, it was like an AOL-like service. Right. And I remember, so so at that time, when, when and Ed was ha- head of VH1, and yeah. Ha was under his umbrella yeah. at that time. So I remember going to the Grammys with him. It was the best Grammys going in with him. It was just so much fun. Well, then Ed and I, for a while, co-invested together, and I lost money on 100% of those deals. <laughs> but- Yeah, he, I know, I know you, were, you, you did a very big deal early on. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, it was a, a couple, unfortunately. <laughs> I just going to ask a broad question about you've done comedy, now you did a serious movie. Is there one that's harder? Uh, you like, did, no, you, did I, you know, this ignite a passion in you for yeah, more movies? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a number of projects in development now, so and projects that will come to fruition. So we're doing something with Comedy Central a documentary called What a Mother about comedians and their mothers, hmm. and I'm producing that with Loki Films. And then I have um, That's a, great, that Comedy Central. another project with PBS that can't talk about exactly right now, but mm-hmm. it's it's a go. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that, and um, we started a production production company here to go out and produce more comedy or whatever else we want to produce. But I was just talking about like Chris Rock. I remember saying, I remember hearing him say that it seems harder to do a serious movie than it is to do a comedy. Uh, I mean, it's harder to do a comedy, excuse me, than a serious. Oh, movie. a comedy is the hardest right. thing to do. Right, 
because it's, Absolutely. Yeah. Although, although, you know, I was reading an interview with Adam McKay and it was really fascinating. He said they would have test screenings and then they would measure where the exact second where it was peak laughter and then they would re-edit to stop the scene at the peak, at peak laughter. So they kind of juiced the comedy in, in each, you know, without having a laugh track or anything, they knew exactly how to edit, but based on the test audiences, it was fascinating mm -hmm. the way he, he described the editing process on, on well, enhancing yeah. well, the comedy Well, he would know movie. because he produced live, you know, he produced Saturday Night Live for so long. He knew exactly where they got that, that laugh and, you know, how to, how to, comedy's much harder to write a, a comedy than to write a, just a regular dr dramatic script. Much harder. And have you ever considered using this stage to to produce your own specials? So, like, not let's say not the Chris Rocks of the world, and not necessarily the ones Netflix is, are, is picking up. But then you see all these shows, like I think on Amazon, the the Degenerates or Inside Jokes, where it's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, comedians one after the other, as opposed to a special. You know, on a stage, you 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 have audience, co comedians, and stage, all the and cameras probably mm -hmm. all around, all the elements to make a cheap special. We are. We're doing okay. it. We're right. doing it. Good. Yeah. Good for you. We have it in the works right now. <laughs> and then, and then you going to a Netflix as opposed to a Netflix executive finding a comedian. You have, you know, the the uh, authority to say no. This one you should choose. So. Mm -hmm. We see it right here. We know what works because we have the public that comes in here and tells us who they like. Can't you can't you can't beat that? Yeah. You give the public what they want, and we know that. Well. Again, Caroline Hirsch, thank you so much. Uh, I'm a big fan of the club and I was a huge fan or I am a huge fan of the movie, Ask for Jane, coming out May 17th. I encourage anyone to watch this no matter what. Like it's such a great movie in, in a variety of ways. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for loving the movie. Don't forget, you can see Ask for Jane uh, at Village East in New York City on May 17th. Where about in L.A.? Where can you see it? Well, that will be opening up in a, in a week or two. And what other movie theater are you excited that it's opening up in? No, we hopefully go to Chicago. We hope to go to a lot of small cities around the United States. Excellent. Well, I'm going to be there at Village East. I'm going to watch it again, this time with popcorn. So thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. 